You're listening to the Psych Central Podcast, where guest experts in the field of psychology and mental health share thought-provoking information using plain, everyday language. Here's your host, Gabe Howard. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Psych Central Podcast. I'm your host, Gabe Howard, and calling into the show today, we have Francis Mark Mondamore, MD. Dr. Mondamore is an associate professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, and he's also the founding director of the Mood Disorder Clinics at the Hopkins Bayview Medical Center. He's the author of Bipolar Disorder, A Guide for You and Your Loved Ones, which is now in its fourth edition. The book has helped thousands of doctors and patients navigate a very difficult diagnosis. Dr. Mondamore, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be with you. We're very glad to have you. And listen, as a man who lives with bipolar disorder, I am a fan of anything that helps people lead a better life managing this illness. Is that the point of your book, to help people with bipolar disorder have a higher quality of life? Yes, that's precisely the point. When the first edition came out, unlike today, there weren't too many books on the market for people who were affected by the illness. Most of what was available were textbooks and other books for psychiatrists, for psychologists and therapists. The idea of having a book that people would read to have a better understanding of their illness, there just wasn't thought to be much of a market for that. It became immediately apparent after the book appeared that idea was totally wrong because this book has become one of the best sellers for the publisher which is, I think, why it's now in its fourth edition, 20 years later. When anything can survive the public consciousness for 20 years and get four revisions, it shows you just how necessary it is. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, one of the things that sort of fascinated me is typically books on mental health or mental illness are either directed at the person living with the illness or they're directed at their friends and family. Or there's another subset, of course, that are directed at practitioners. Now, in your book, you directed it at the person living with bipolar disorder and their loved ones. Can you talk us through that decision? Well, the purpose of the book really was to provide education and information for people about the illness. I spend quite a few chapters talking about the symptoms, talking about diagnosis, talking about treatment. I go into, in more recent editions, I go into the causes of this illness. That is information that's going to be valuable not only for the person with the illness, but also for their family. Because very frequently, patients will tell me that their family members don't really understand the illness and have expectations of them that are unrealistic or perhaps even discourage them from getting treatment. So there's a lot of misinformation, not only on the part of the people being treated for the illness, but also their family members. There's sections of the book which are more directed towards the person with the illness. And then I also have chapters specifically for the family, because this is an illness that affects not only the person who has it, but their family members as well. The support of my loved ones has been very instrumental in my recovery, but I'm recounting a story when I was newly diagnosed and, you know, keep in mind, I'm a 25 year old and I'm putting all of my pills in a little pill minder. And my mother says, oh my God, you need all these pills. Are you sure you have to take them? 
And as I'm looking at her very perplexed, because I was prescribed these by a doctor, it's a very confusing time, etc. She says, I, I think you take more pills than your grandparents combined. Now, I, I love my mother very much, but it was hurtful. It was confusing. It was hopeless. And she didn't mean to. I, I feel you can probably hear in my voice, I, I feel bad for outing my mother's mistake. But is that what the point of addressing family, loved ones, the person with the disorder all at the same time is? Because I, again, speaking purely in my life, all of us working together has provided huge dividends. Yes, absolutely. Another group here really are the family members of people who do not want to get treatment because frequently those folks are absolutely desperate, don't know what to do, and they need information as well. But I think the most important thing is that there be open and honest communication between really the three members on the team, which is the doctor, the patient, and the family members. I strongly encourage patients to bring a family member to them with their appointments. It's really important that we all be operating with the same set of information and that everyone feel empowered to ask the questions that uh, will help them to understand better what everyone's going through. Now, some critics might say that you're implying that people with bipolar disorder need a, a caregiver or uh, somebody to watch out for them, or they, they can't maintain life on their own. I know that's not the implication, but can you address sort of the mental health community that says, well, why are you implying that our family has to be involved at all? I don't mean to say that family members must be involved. What I'm saying is that inevitably, when a person is being treated for this severe illness, and they have folks living with them. Those folks frequently don't have the information that they need to give the kind of good advice that they should. For example, perhaps if your mother had come to an appointment or two, she would have had a much better understanding of why people with bipolar disorder frequently need to be on several medications. So it's to prevent those kinds of unfortunate experiences like you've just described, that is the entire purpose of providing information to the family as well as to the patient. I obviously agree with you. I, I think that anything major that happens to your loved one has a ripple effect that affects the whole family. I use my father retiring I don't live with my parents. In fact, I live 700 miles away. But as soon as my dad retired, suddenly things changed. He was bored. He drove my mother nuts. I noticed he started calling more. <laughs> he just had more free time and there was an adjustment and this rippled onto the family. So if there was a book on how to retire, it might behoove the author to write a chapter about how your loved ones are going to react because suddenly... My father's home all the time, and this was not my experience in my entire life. I do think that it's somewhat of an unfair criticism to pretend that we can live with a serious illness and it not ripple off onto the people around us in any way. What, are they, are they just ignoring us or uncaring? So I'm often surprised that this comes up. Yes, really to bring up an example of another illness, if a person in the family is diagnosed with diabetes... The person who's making the meals needs to adjust, as does the whole family. So 
again, it, what's important is that people have the information that they need to provide the kind of support and encouragement that's going to be helpful rather than asking questions or telling people what to do based on erroneous information. I often quote the motto of the university, of Johns Hopkins University, which is veritas vos liberabit, which means the truth will set you free. And that's basically what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to give people the information, the real information, up-to-date information about the illness. How do we think about it these days? How do we classify it? How do we treat it? And why do those treatments work? I think all of that information is really necessary for people to lead the healthiest life that they can, and also for family members to be as helpful as they can. Thank you so much, Dr. Mondamore, for discussing this, because I, I do know that it comes up so often. Now, one of the things that I'm thinking is I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder 18 years ago. Your book would have been about two years old when that came out. Now, I'm not a researcher or a doctor, just a guy with a podcast, but I keep thinking to myself, you needed to update the book four times. Has bipolar disorder changed that much in the last 20 years? Because it, from my perspective, it it's pretty much the same. Yes. The things that have changed are the treatments. That is the biggest change. When the book was first written, there was essentially one mood stabilizer on the market. There were antidepressants. And there were the older antipsychotic medications. And in ensuing years, we have had whole new classes, mood stabilizing medications. We now have at least half a dozen. The number of antidepressants has tremendously improved and expanded. A tremendous improvement in treatment was the development of the atypical antipsychotic medications, which were developed really to decrease the risk of a severe side effect with the older antipsychotic medications. But in doing that, it was discovered that these molecules have mood stabilizing qualities and that they can be extremely helpful for treating both mania and depression, whereas the older antipsychotic medications really didn't do very much for depression. The new brain stimulation treatments like transcranial magnetic stimulation those devices were just FDA approved within the last 10 years. And of course, there's always new medications in, in the pipeline. We understand a lot more about supplements. We understand a lot more about things that an individual can take over the counter that can be helpful for bipolar disorder, dietary changes that can be helpful. We understand a lot more about why things like exercise can be helpful in maintaining a better mood. So the available treatment has just tremendously expanded. When you turn to the neuroscience, the developments are even more dramatic. When the first edition of the book was published, as far as causes of bipolar disorder, it was pretty much a black box. No one really understood anything about what caused the illness or how medications work. That has changed tremendously. We understand a lot more about what causes the, the uh, illness, and we understand much better what these medications are doing in the brain to treat the symptoms. 
A very popular book that came out a few years after I was diagnosed was called uh, Electro Boy, A Memoir of Mania. And the reason that I bring this up is because for this small period of time, society thought that only electroshock therapy would work for bipolar disorder. And then sort of the tide turned and everybody thought, okay, electroshock therapy would not work for bipolar disorder. And it's not even actually called electroshock therapy. That's a non-scientific name. But it is one of the treatments that is discussed. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because I think that there's just a lot of confusion in society about what it is and what its role in treating bipolar disorder is? Electroconvulsive therapy, which is the proper term. We know that is the most effective treatment for serious depression. It is also a treatment for mania. And in the old days, when we didn't have nearly the range of medications that we had, it probably was used more frequently. We know that when a person, for example, takes an antidepressant medication, there's only about a 50% chance that antidepressant is going to be effective for them. When we only had one group of antidepressants, pretty much the, the result was going to be the same. Now that we have so many different treatments available for this illness, Many fewer people require that very invasive treatment. When they do require it, it's there and it can be life-saving. But we don't use it that much anymore for bipolar disorder. While we're talking about the brain, you talk about something called neuroimaging, neuroimaging of bipolar disorder. Now, this is fascinating to me because I understand nothing about it. Can you give us a very layman's term of what neuroimaging is? Sure. Neuroimaging is basically means taking pictures of the brain. The first big advancement in that regard were CAT scans. And now we have MRI scans and they can provide very detailed pictures of the brain, of the structure of the brain. More dramatic developments have been the ability to look at the activity of the brain through neuroimaging. We can now look at individuals with bipolar disorder and unaffected healthy individuals and see if there are differences in which areas of their brain are active. And we now know that there are certain areas of the brain that are underactive in people with depression, for example. These kinds of advancements actually led to this new treatment that I mentioned earlier, transcranial magnetic stimulation, in which a magnetic field is used to stimulate the underlying brain tissue. And we know where in the brain to send that stimulation because of brain imaging techniques. The other big thing that has really come out of brain imaging techniques is this idea that there are networks in the brain that are important, that there are different areas of the brain that talk to each other, and that when there are changes or impairments in the balance between these networks, between the centers of these networks, mood symptoms can can develop. We learned a number of years ago that an area of the brain called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which is a very long way of saying an area of the brain 
that is towards the back of the forehead. And we now know that area of the cortex is underactive in people who are depressed. And that when they get better from depression, that activity level returns to normal. And that happens no matter what has made them better. You see the same changes in people that have been treated with antidepressants, with ECT, with psychotherapy. So whatever helps people to get better with depression is having the effect of improving the functioning in this one area of the brain. We'll be back in a quick minute after we hear from our sponsors. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp.com. Secure, convenient, and affordable online counseling. All counselors are licensed, accredited professionals. Anything you share is confidential. Schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist whenever you feel it's needed. A month of online therapy often costs less than a single traditional face-to-face session. Go to BetterHelp.com forward slash Psych Central and experience seven days of free therapy to see if online counseling is right for you. BetterHelp.com forward slash Psych Central. And we're back discussing bipolar disorder with Dr. Francis Mark Mondamore. With all that we have learned, are we any closer to finding out the causes of bipolar disorder? Yes, we're much closer. In the old days, perhaps when you were diagnosed, people used the term chemical imbalance, that mental illness was caused by this imbalance of chemicals. Uh, the neurotransmitters, the chemicals that the brain uses, that the brain cells use to communicate with each other. And now we know that mood is actually dependent on the health of brain cells. We used to think that by the time you were about 18 months old, you had all the brain cells you were ever going to have. And now we know that's not the case, that in fact there are stem cells in the brain And these stem cells are constantly developing into new nerve cells. And we understand that normal mood requires that this be going on, that these new nerve cells be developing. And also that the brain cells that are already mature are breaking connections with other nerve cells, are making new connections with other nerve cells, There are areas of the brain that are basically constantly remodeling themselves in response to the environment. And we think that mood disorders are caused by an impairment in this remodeling process. This is a fascinating concept that I I read in, I believe, your latest book, where you talk about the brain being like the internet. Right. Can you elaborate on that? Yes. Again, in the the old days, one would say, the brain, it's like a giant computer. It's like a really powerful computer. That's really not the case. The brain really is more like the internet. The internet is made up of millions of computers that are connected to each other and that each can be programmed and can respond to what is going on in other computers. And the brain and all of its uh, billions and billions of neurons is more like the internet with billions and billions of individual computers, each of which can be programmed. I love analogies because analogies are just, they're, they're ways for people like me to understand high level concepts. When I think about the brain being like the internet, one of the first things that I think of is the internet must be connected 
to other computers independent of themselves to survive. Now, is, is that just an example of where the analogy breaks down? I would say that connectedness is one of the most important qualities of the brain. The fact that all of these brain cells connect to other brain cells. And there are some brain cells that connect to tens of thousands of other brain cells. And each cell is basically reprogramming itself based on the information that's coming from other brain cells, from other areas of the brain. And when this connectivity breaks down, that is when problems arise. And we are beginning to think that this is true of bipolar disorder and major depression. Also, it appears to be the connectivity problem that underlies schizophrenia. Whereas we used to think about chemical imbalances, that being too much of this chemical or too little of that chemical, we're now beginning to think of imbalances in these networks so that one area of the brain is underactive, another area of the brain is overactive, two areas of the brain are overly connected to each other. Those are the kinds of differences that we are beginning to recognize underlie a lot of mental illness. And neuroimaging has made this possible because the modern neuroimaging techniques allow us to visualize these networks in the brain and to know how the brain's different centers are talking to one another. When it comes to treating bipolar disorder, you spend a lot of time talking about the effects of stress and the importance of stress management. Can you explain to our audience why it's so important to manage stress when living with bipolar disorder? There have been some really fascinating animal studies over several decades now about stress and the effect of stress on the brain. And animal studies have shown that when you stress animals in various ways, one way is to confine mice or laboratory rats in a lucite tube uh, in a brightly lit environment. That's very stressful for these animals. And then when you examine their brain cells, what you find is that some of the brain cells basically are shrunken. They look like uh, trees that have been badly pruned. What we now understand is that the messenger of that damage is the stress hormone cortisone. And we understand that the stress hormones are basically very bad for your brain. Think about cortisone and what cortisone is used for medically. Cortisone is used to decrease inflammation. It is used to cut down on the number of inflammatory cells in an inflamed area of the body and keeps those inflammatory cells from dividing and multiplying. The normal operation of the brain is dependent on a constant influx of new cells, of new neurons. So obviously when cortisone levels are high, cortisol levels are high, that is going to be impairing the proper operation of the brain. So anything that helps keep our cortisol levels under control is going to be helpful. What causes increases of cortisol? Stress, physical stress, psychological stress. What controls cortisol and helps our stress system operate normally? All of the things that your mother probably told you to do getting exercise, getting regular sleep, 
not using drugs or alcohol, eating a healthy diet, all of these things are good for the brain. One of the things that we're hearing a lot in our modern society is alternative medicine. And one of the things that alternative medicine says is things like diet and exercise and yoga comes up a lot. I'm torn because on one hand, I agree that diet and exercise and healthy living and sleep and and stress management are all extraordinarily important to managing bipolar disorder. But I feel that they often take it too far and say, do this, not that. Do you feel that holistic medicine has a place in our society or is it too damaging or is it just an example of society trying to pick one or the other when in actuality they should pick both? Yes, they should pick both. I have some problems with the idea of alternative medicine, that term, alternative. If a person has diabetes, using a great example again, sometimes they can change their diet and lose weight and their diabetes is completely under control. Is that alternative medicine? I don't think so. It's just good medicine. Most of the illnesses that trouble modern man are common illnesses that have a lot of environmental factors which go into their causation and which can be addressed in treating them better. And now we understand more about the physiology of that. We understand how that is happening, that when you have a poor diet, when you don't get good sleep, cortisol levels increase and cortisol is bad for your brain. So we understand more about how it all operates. And this idea that exercising, yoga, all of those things are alternatives, I I don't see them as alternatives. I see them as part and parcel of being healthy and staying well. Dr. Mondemorth, you've been studying and researching bipolar disorder for 20 years. You're on the fourth edition of your book. Do you think that society's opinion of bipolar disorder is changing? Yes, I think we've come a tremendous uh, distance. When the first edition came out, I don't think too many people would recognize the term bipolar disorder. They may have heard of manic depressive illness, which is the old term for this. But bipolar disorder certainly wasn't a household term. And I think that's changed. We have come a very long way in decreasing the stigma associated with all mental illnesses. Bipolar disorder is certainly one of them. And I think there are a lot of reasons for this. One is that there have been any number of individuals who have come out and said that they have been diagnosed with bipolar disorder, and even better, they have been successfully treated for bipolar disorder. And that has had a tremendous impact on decreasing the stigma of these illnesses because people see success stories like your own. Basically, you're a success story. Oh, thank you so much. And And I couldn't agree more. I don't know that this would have been an option for me 20 years ago saying, hi, my my name is Gabe. I live with mental illness and I I want to host a show where I interview experts. They would have been like, I don't know that patients can interview doctors. I still get a little pushback even in 2020. So I can only imagine that 20 years ago, I'm very proud of the fact that patient advocacy has, has moved so far forward and we're starting to see more of a partnership between patients and doctors because I, I think that's good for everybody. Dr. Mondamore, thank you so much. The name of the book is Bipolar Disorder, A Guide for You and Your Loved Ones. It's in the fourth edition. Where can we find the book? 
As they say, anywhere books are sold, it's on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, all of your online bookstores and in uh, brick and mortar bookstores as well. Thank you so very much. And I hope everybody goes and grabs that book. Thank you. Wonderful to be with you. Thanks for the invitation. Thank you again, Dr. Mondamore. And thank you to all of our listeners. Wherever you downloaded this podcast, please subscribe. My name is Gabe Howard, and I am the author of Mental Illness is an Asshole, which is available on Amazon.com, or you can get signed copies for less money, including Psych Central podcast swag, just by heading over to GabeHoward.com. Remember, you can get one week of free, convenient, affordable, private online counseling anytime, anywhere, simply by visiting BetterHelp.com slash Psych Central. We'll see everybody next week. You've been listening to the Psych Central Podcast. Want your audience to be wowed at your next event? Feature an appearance and live recording of the Psych Central Podcast right from your stage. For more details or to book an event, please email us at show at psychcentral.com. Previous episodes can be found at psychcentral.com slash show or on your favorite podcast player. Psych Central is the Internet's oldest and largest independent mental health website run by mental health professionals. Overseen by Dr. John Grohall, Psych Central offers trusted resources and quizzes to help answer your questions about mental health, personality, psychotherapy, and more. Please visit us today at psychcentral.com. To learn more about our host, Gabe Howard, please visit his website at gabehoward.com. Thank you for listening, and please share with your friends, family, and followers. There are few words more misunderstood and misused than OCD. Imagine having unwanted thoughts stuck in your head all day no matter how hard you try to make them go away, and then having to pretend that everything is okay despite having to feel crippled inside. That's OCD. One in 40 people suffer from it globally, but there's hope. If you have OCD and need help, you can get better with specialized treatment. NoCD offers effective, affordable, and convenient treatment for OCD and is covered by many major insurance plans. Go to NoCD.com to learn more. That's NoCD.com.